Welcome to Souls Harbor's weekly podcast. We believe that God has called us to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, help them grow to be like Jesus, and involve them in reaching lost people. Listen now to this week's message. Hey guys, welcome to the feed tonight. Glad you came to join us for our Bible study. Uh, I see we've got a few people online already, so welcome. Robert's out there and Dee Dee. I saw Cheryl a minute ago. I see Sam and Dawn and Brenda, and I don't even know who else is on the feed, but I see a bunch of people. Hey, we're going to jump into Revelation tonight. Uh, this is week two of our series on Christ and Revelation, so this ought to be some fun tonight. We're going to look at chapter two, and we're going to jump right into this. So let's pray real quick, and uh, then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Uh, and we ask you tonight, Lord, as we study your word together, that you would be uh, just right in the center of everything we talk about. And God, help us to take the truths of your word tonight and apply it to our lives in the way we serve you and the way we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, let's jump into this tonight. Uh, let me just check the feed here real quick and see who else we have on. I see Christine's out there with us now. And Debbie, hi guys. Good to have you. Um, what in the world? I see corn dogs and tater tots. I think that's part of our feed. Uh, somebody must be talking about supper tonight, I guess. Um, making me hungry now, though. Hey, we are uh, glad to have you. I'm just trying to scroll through these real quick tonight. Awesome. We'll probably have a few more people jump in here as the night goes on, but we're going to go ahead and get started this evening. So let's start about this with this. Let's start where we started last week. Let's just take a, a minute or two and do some review, just a little bit of um, uh, just support of what we talked about in the past. So what is the central theme of Revelation? We really hit that last week. I'm just going to spend a moment on it this week. Remember, the central theme of Revelation, as we talked about last week, is this. According to 1-1, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I just want to emphasize this because it's going to become uh, a little bit central of what we're going to talk about tonight. That word revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is apocalypsis in Greek, and it means the uncovering or the revealing. So what that means is the central theme of Revelation is this. It's the uncovering or the revealing of Jesus Christ in order that we can understand the um, things that are yet to come is the way that John put it in his letter. Another piece of this I want to just uh, do a quick refresh on from last week because it again becomes important in what we're going to talk about tonight is remember the symbolism uh, of, of last week. Um, John turned around, saw Jesus standing in the middle of seven lampstands and holding in his right hand, I believe it was, seven stars. And the the uh, first chapter actually tells us what those symbols represent. Sometimes we're left to figure it out on our own. In this case, we're not because we're told the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. In other words, Jesus has, controls, guides, directs the angels that oversee the various churches. And the lampstands themselves are the churches. And Jesus is walking among the lampstands, or Jesus is walking among the churches, and that will become a little bit more important a little bit later on. So uh, the type of book Revelation is, it's unique in that it's actually three kinds of literature all at one time. It's apocalyptic, so you're going to see a lot of the heavy symbolism, uh, even more so as we get past chapter 2 and chapter 3, but a lot of the heavy symbolism that is an attribute of apocalyptic literature. Uh, so we have to look for proper understandings of what those symbols represent. 
Uh, it's also prophetic. This is a prophetic book. Um, it, it proclaims itself a prophetic book. And it's also an epistle or a letter, and we're going to focus in on kind of that perspective on this uh, tonight, the epistle or the letter perspective. Although realize that the entirety of the book, and, and we miss this sometimes, not just chapters 2 and chapters 3, but the entirety of the book is, is a letter that is written to the various churches. Now, I, I want to give you something new to think about tonight and realize as we read uh, through, the, the chap through chapter 2 tonight, the, there is a letter to each of the seven churches, and we're going to see that, and it's not uh, terribly long, each, each individual letter, but realize this, okay, they read each other's mail. All right, that was one of the unique characteristics of Revelation. Um, John, under the unction of the Holy Spirit and God's direction, wrote this revelation, this revealing of who Jesus is, and, and he wrote a specific message to each of the churches, but understand the way this was unfolded was each church didn't just read their letter. It wasn't like, uh, you, you know, this piece went to Thyatira, and this piece went to Ephesus, and this piece went to wh wherever. E all of the churches got all of the letters, and all of the churches read all of the letters. And I, I think that's important for us tonight because sometimes people get caught up in, well, you know, what do these letters represent? Who are they for? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of various views we could jump into on what they represent. But basically, it's a message not just to the first century church of Ephesus, for example. It's, it's a message to the church throughout of all time. And, and that's true of all of God's Word. There's application in all of God's Word for all churches at all times. So just understand that. They read each other's letters, and it's appropriate for us tonight to read those letters as well. Now, each letter, as we get into it tonight, we're just going to look at chapter 2, so we're really just going to look at the letters to the first four churches, even though they all read all the letters. Um, they, they break down basically, and, and there's some variation of this, but they break down basically into four patterns, or into a pattern of, of four different characteristics. It opens with an introduction, which we'll see is kind of important. Uh, then there's a commendation, and then there is a rebuke, and then there is a promise. And we want to look at each of these tonight as we jump into this. So what are we going to look at tonight? We're going to look at the letters. We're going to see how Jesus is revealed uh, in Revelation by looking at the letters that were sent in chapter 2 to four of the seven churches. We're going to look at the letter to Ephesus, the letter to Smyrna, the letter to Pergamos, and the letter to Thyatira tonight. And just so you get a little bit of a visual, um, I put up the map here. You can kind of see uh, where these churches fall. They fall in what is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, um, more or less. And, and notice as you look at that map tonight, you can see that they, they were kind of laid out so that Ephesus, they kind of follow a pattern, a U-shaped pattern. So if somebody was was uh, taking these letters, delivering these letters, you can almost see them laid out in the way they might have been delivered. First to Ephesus, then up to Smyrna, then up and up to Pergamum, and then back down to Thyatira. Almost like makes like a, a U-shape. Uh, and then we'll find out the last three are Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So let's do this tonight. Let's start into the letter to Ephesus, and let's see how this piece of revelation um, accomplishes the goal, which is to show us the revelation or the understanding of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight. We're going to we're going to read through uh, chapter two, and uh, we're just going to pull out some interesting pieces and some things that I think connect with us today in the church especially. So the letter to uh, the church at Ephesus, it opens this way. Here's the introduction I mentioned. Um, it gives us that revelation of Jesus Christ. Look what it says and what it reveals about Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold gold lampstands. So we, we see right off the bat, um, there is again that, that uh, emphasis on 
who Jesus is. He controls, he rules over, he guides, he directs, he utilizes the angels, the stars that are in his right hand to care for the church, to protect the church, to chastise the church, to do whatever needs to happen. And if you take the, the word of God literally and you believe that there are angels, there are demonic forces, there is good, evil, all those things, um, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that there are still angels assigned to maybe uh, areas, geographic areas, or certainly in, in possibly churches even today. We don't know exactly how that hierarchy works, but it is reasonable to think um, that, that it is still there today. So Jesus is initially, from the very beginning, as these letters are start to start to be laid out, he is the one that, that utilizes, directs, guides the angels that care for the churches. But he's also, at the same time, walking among the seven golden lampstands or walking among the churches. Now, now, now think about that. Um, Jesus walks among his churches, which he, means, folks, he, he walks among our church. Uh, he is there in, in a very real way on a spiritual level. His presence is there even within our church. And, and, and I think it's important that we realize that. Um, and there's some implications of that that we'll get into a little bit later. So we move on into this letter that reveals Jesus and what's going to take place uh, in Ephesus with the second part. And, and it starts with the commendation. In other words, the things that they are doing right and they are doing well. John writes, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, there's a few things I just I want to highlight in here, okay? There is going to be two or three common issues and common challenges that every one of these four churches face. The first one we find out there, I, I've underlined it, you, are, you, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. One of the biggest challenges the church in the first century and the church in the 21st century have in common are those that want to teach heresy, those that want to teach false truth, those that want to take the word of God and spin it and make it mold into their view of their, the world, their ideology. I've talked a good bit about ideology in the last few weeks in our various services. And, and I, want to, I want you to see even all the way back at the time of Ephesus. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Now, one of the things that is special about Ephesus is they actually... Um, from the beginning, they begin to identify those that were throwing out false teachings or just heretical teachings or just weird teachings or just twisted teachings or, or incomplete teachings. There's a lot of different ways that, that false teachers rise. Um, some of them even, in fact, many of them probably even have good intentions. They don't believe they're false, but they're not taking the entirety of the Word of God. And it's important that we understand this is an ongoing problem and we as the people of God have to be careful who we listen to who we who we read, who we follow, and 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 not just there's this mentality, there's this mindset in in the twenty late twentieth and twenty first century that uh, it used to be if you're on TV you must be real, uh, if you're on the internet you're on YouTube, if you have a big enough following then you must be legit. But you know there's a whole lot of cult leaders out there. There's a whole lot of pretty twisted people out there that have some really big following. So we have to be careful that we take whatever is taught and we compare it to the entirety of the Word of God. And I'll tell you the other piece of this is we as the people of God, it's important 
that the people that we choose to listen to, we choose to follow, especially those that we choose to follow closely, we have a really close relationship with them. We have a one-on-one, face-to-face, I know you, I know the, I, I know the depths of your character, um, because it's too easy somebody that all we ever see from them is something we see on TV or YouTube or where, wherever the source may be or in a book. You, you know, we don't really know them. And I believe we're to know, this is even scriptural, we're to know those that work and serve among us. And I believe that's part of that. And, and the church at Ephesus, they, they did that. They were really good at that. Um, he goes on and he does give a rebuke, however. While they were good at identifying the false teachers, there is a rebuke. And it's, it's, it's an interesting one because it ties into last Sunday's sermon. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The the rebuke that came to the church at Ephesus wasn't that you've fallen into false teaching. It wasn't that you failed. It wasn't that you had uh, some kind of failure along the way. It's that you don't love me with the intensity you once did. Remember the covenant that I talked about Sunday, last three Sundays, the covenant that we are in a covenant, and, and that covenant can be summed up with, with Jesus' words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And that's where God was challenging, chastising the church in Ephesus. He said, look, you've lost, you've abandoned, you've forgotten your first love, the intensity with which you loved me once upon a time. And if there's application uh, here tonight, church, for us, it's that each one of us needs to look into the depths of our own heart and ask, are we still in love with Jesus? Do we still have the intensity of love that we once had when we first gave our lives to him, that when he first set us free? Uh, if not, then this is a place that the rebuke to Ephesus ought to be a rebuke to us. But, but understand the rebuke. It is this, that if we will remember where we used to be, and we will repent of where we currently are, and do the works that we once did again, then he will forgive us, he will come to us, and, and, and he will restore us in, 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 our entire, in, in the entirety of our blessing. If not, and this is a scary thing, he says, I will remove your lampstand from its place. Our very, our lampstand, our very presence, in the, or our very, very sense, our consciousness, our awareness, our soul, our spirit, in, in the presence of God, Jesus will no longer walk among us, is what he's saying. And, and that's a that's a pretty serious big deal. So I, I think there's a lot of truth and a lot of a lot of application there. He goes on with his commendation, and it's kind of a backwards commendation a little bit, left-handed commendation a little bit. He says this. He says, "Yet this I, yet this you have. Even though you've lost your first love, you have this. You hate the work of works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." And there's a lot of debate about who these Nicolaitans are. Um, and we, we just, there, there's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of thoughts, there's a lot of debate. What we do know, and, and nobody really has a good answer for this because they probably weren't around for very long, but what we do know, what we are able to, to figure out from history and from Scripture is they were a group of people, um, regardless of their background, that ha- had taken the immorality, um, the, the cultural norms of the world around them, the Greek, the, the, the Roman culture, and they had brought it and tied it into and, and absorbed it into the church, into Christianity, and they become very comfortable um, saying, you know what, we're free. And this, this goes back to some of Paul's teaching in Galatians. We're free. But our freedom, because we're free, we're, we're free from sin, we can pretty much live our lives any way we want to live them. Uh, live, live, live it. And, and, and 
or John was coming along and saying to the church at Ephesus, he says, this, I, this is to your benefit. You've identified these Nicolaitans and you've said, no, this is not acceptable. This is not way, the way we're going to be the, the church. Now, I, I want you to notice this. One of the reasons I believe Ephesus actually did such a great job of identifying these false teachers and not allowing them to be um, destructive within the church was because all the way back in Acts chapter 20, when Paul himself was going through there and initially planting the churches in Ephesus, he gave them a warning. And I, I just want you to see this warning in, in uh, Acts 20. We get it. Pay careful attention, he told him, as he was getting ready to leave after planting the churches. He was on his way to Jerusalem, knew he would probably never be back to the Ephesian area churches again. He said, listen, I'm warning you elders, you pastors, be, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Because after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So be alert. He says, be alert. And, and they had that warning from the very early um, days of the founding of the church with Paul. And they took it seriously, and they saw it happen. And, and that's one of the reasons when John wrote his letter, he, he, Jesus was able to commend them because of their stand. And then we get the Ephesian promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. We have that tree in the, the original garden. We have that tree pop up again at the end of Revelation. It's the tree of life. It, it's one way probably symbolically of saying you will have eternal life. The one um, who conquers. The one who overcomes. The one who doesn't lose their initial intensity. The one who reclaims their initial intensity, their love for Jesus. So that was a word written to the church at Ephesus, but really it was a word written to all churches of the seven and written to us today. Um, I, I want you to see this again. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And here's, here's the application. Jesus who walks among his people, that's me and you. Okay, we're not talking about Ephesus anymore. That's me and you. Jesus who walks among his people knows those who are going through the motions of religion and those who truly, intensely love him. And we need to guard our hearts and our minds and our actions and our priorities and all those things and make sure that we are the ones who still today intensely love him like we did when we initially became followers of Christ. Let's go on. Let's look tonight at the letter uh, to Smyrna. Smyrna is unique in that Smyrna was the one, one of two churches, but only one of the four we're going to look at tonight, that actually did not have... Uh, any place where there was condemnation, okay? No place where Jesus had to say, look, I've got this against you. So let's open with the introduction. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And notice that, okay? We've got this. He was the first. He's the last. He's the one who died and the one, to came, one who came to life. And then we go on with a commendation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, no, now notice that again. You're poor. You're in poverty, but you're rich. Jesus was dead, now he's alive. He is the beginning, he is the end. You are poor, but you are rich. And he says, and the slander, and I know the slanderer of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Again, a possibility of those false teachers. He says this, and, and, and notice there is no place where he has to bring chastisement to this church, because then he goes right into the promise. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days... 
10 days may be a literal, literal 10 days. Probably it's more symbolic than that in, in some sense. Um, but regardless, for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's the promise. Okay? Do not fear. Now, now, now listen, if you're trying to convince people you need to become a follower of Christ, and you're going to say to them, you've got tribulation coming, and that tribulation may actually extend to death, that doesn't seem like that would be a good marketing ploy. But it is a reality, and I think it's a reality the 21st century needs to get our heads and our hearts around that serving Jesus will cost us something. Serving Jesus may ultimately cost us more than we can even imagine. It may cost us our lives at some point. We're fortunate, we're blessed in the day that we're living, in, in that um, we haven't faced that kind of tribulation in the West, but yet you got to wonder if maybe that isn't at one point going to come. Uh, the promise goes on. He says, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So we have that promise again of eternity. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, this goes back to the introduction, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is the revelation of Jesus. Okay, it's, 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 a, story, it's a letter of hardship, but it's also that story of contrast. And I tried to show you that at the beginning. He, is the, he was the beginning, he is the end. He uh, was dead and now he's alive. You're poor, but you're actually rich. And I believe one of the things that we as the church today, and, and here's where this becomes a church uh, a letter, not to just the, the church of the first century, but to us, is that we have got to make sure that we keep our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on eternal things and realize we live in the here and now, we live in the physical, but our ultimate reality, our ultimate existence is in the eternal. And yes, we may be poor now, or we may not, but we may be, even if we are poor, or even if we are persecuted, we are still blessed. Even if we are poor, we are still rich. And, and, and that's what Jesus is trying to say. Realize that this world you live in is not your home. This is a place you're passing through. And if you're blessed here, you, then use your blessing for the kingdom of God to bring the kingdom of God. If you're, if you're facing tribulation here, then realize this is not the last place you will live. This is just a, a period of time. And again, I think for the 21st century, folks, there's some truth there that we really need to get our heads around, not knowing where our culture and our world is going, but sh certainly seeing it going in a direction that's just really, really concerning. Let's look at Pergamos tonight, this third church, this third letter. It opens with this introduction into the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, we could spend some time on the two-edged sword, and it could probably be understood and interpreted in a number of ways. But let's just look at it tonight as the way I think probably traditionally it gets understood, and that is as the word of God. The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. So he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the words of Christ, who has the word of God. Um, we can go to John, which remember this revelation was written by John. We could go, we could go to John. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God with God, and the Word was God. And, and then it talks about Him being, um, being the Word itself. And you see that logos. And, and we could go deep into that. I, I, I want to keep moving tonight. I, I don't want to do that. But just realize that sharp two-edged sword is the Word of God, and, and we can see it as the Word of God in the sense of Jesus who walked this earth, but also in the sense of the Bible, the Word of God that we now currently have. He goes on with his commendation to, the, to this church. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. 
And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And again, we see a martyr being being called out, and, 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 and Jesus takes the moment to say, you held faithful even when one of your own was slain and, and was martyred. And, and we see it's a place, it says, where Satan's throne is. It, it's a place where Satan has a stronghold. This is where that church is. And he commends them because they held strong, even in the face of great adversity. But then he comes to the rebuke, and there is a rebuke for this church as well. He says, but I have a few things against you and here's uh, again so here's where it applies to us in the 21st century church but I have a few things against you you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality now if you're not familiar with the story of Balaam he was a prophet in the Old Testament he was a prophet that the King Balak hired to come and go and stand on hilltops or mountaintops around Israel when they were getting ready to enter into the promised land and to curse them and um, he went and he tried and every time he would open his mouth to try to offer a curse against the children of Israel God would step in and he would say no 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 you're not going to curse my people and a blessing would come out well as you can imagine King Bala got really upset about that and um, Balaam said look I told you when I came I could only speak what God told me to speak and he'd offered him gold and wealth and a whole slew of things. It's a good story, worth reading, actually. Very much worth reading if you want to do the, the, the digging into it back in, in the Pentateuch, back, back in the Old Testament. But what Balaam ended up doing, because he couldn't cause, he couldn't curse the children of Israel, what he did was he came to King Balak and he said, Look, if you want to cause them to fall, here's what you got to do. Send down your beautiful women. Send down your daughters. Send them down and let them marry and, and step into relationships with the men of Israel. They'll be pulled into the, that, that relationship, into sexual immorality, and they will be able to attract them to then, um, on their own, begin to follow after the, the gods of your daughters and the gods of your people. That's why he says they were persuaded to eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. In other words, um, they are allowing within their church, Pergamos is to allow within their church those uh, who are willing to compromise with the culture, who are willing to say, you know what, it's okay. Um, you can get along with them. You can even marry with them, and you can live in their household, and, and you can accept and embrace. And, and he says, I've got this against you. You've become too comfortable and too easy with the culture around you. He says in verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, what I talked about a minute ago. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the word of my mouth, with the word of God. Now, in this case, he could be talking, probably is talking about Jesus coming in Revelation um, chapter 19 when he comes and, 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 and passes judgment. But also, even in the more immediate future, there will be judgment. God is a God of grace and mercy and patience. But there does come a place where he brings judgment upon those that just continue to refuse to repent. Then he gives the promise. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So a couple things there. The hidden manna, probably a reference to Jesus himself, okay, as the bread of life. I will give some... Uh, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. In other words, you will partake uh, in my life. And, and again, I believe, again, quite likely even a, a reference to eternity uh, and to that eternal life. And then there's the white stone. And there's a couple possibilities with that. There was a, a cultural thing or a traditional thing 
um, within the days of this church where uh, if you went before a judge or went before a jury or you were on trial, uh, if, if there was a vote of guilty, then there was a black stone given. If there was a vote of innocence, innocent, then there was a white stone given. So I, I will give him a white stone. Could be a reference to that, that if you conquer and overcome and are covered by the blood of the Lamb, then you will have a white stone and you will be seen as innocent, as white um, before God when you stand before him as judgment. There was another sense where a white stone in this culture was used as almost like a ticket into an arena or into a party or into a big celebration and it could be that I will give them a stone that will allow them into that um, supper of the lamb into that eternal existence once again and it may be a, a reference to both we just don't know for sure there's a cultural piece there we're not completely sure about but we can get the the, the, the general direction of it anyway and he says this the, uh, back to the introduction and let me type this this letter up and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And I believe as far as application to us today, there's a, 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 something we need to realize. When we live where Satan's throne resides, and I believe that could be said of not only the church in America, um, in that there is a strong, uh, satanic, uh, evil, maybe it's cultural, take it how you want to, maybe it's not explicit, maybe it's implicit, maybe it's subtle, but there is certainly a strong influence of non- Christian, non-holy, non-godly, non-biblical standards and cultures, culture around us right now. And we see it growing and, and has become very mainstream to the point that it's celebrated. Living where Satan's throne resides requires we understand the two-edged sword of God's word. I, I, I've said this, I've preached this, I'm going to continue to preach it. It's not good enough to have a Bible in your house or have the Word of God on your phone. We have got to open up the Word of God and we've got to read it. We've got to study it. We've got to let it get into our heart, into our spirit. We've got to know what it says, not just what it says, but what else it says. Not just what it says in the passages we like, but what it says about the passages that have a different perspective. We've got to base and build our lives upon a center of the Word of God. And even more, more so when you're living, and we're living in a culture where the culture is going a completely different direction. It's so important, so critical with that. Um, we, we have got to do that. If you're not a student of the Word of God, become one. If you're not a reader of the Word of God, become one. If you don't make understanding the Word of God a part of your life on a daily basis, you've got to start doing that. This is a letter not just to the first century, but to the 21st century church, and we've got to grab a hold of that reality tonight. Hey, let's do this. We're just a, a minute after seven. Let me go through Thyatira and uh, bring this to a close tonight. You guys still all with me? I, I hope you all are out there. I see we still got a few people uh, hanging with us, so awesome. You guys, let's, let, let's go just a few more minutes and we'll look through Thyatira tonight. Uh, this is the introduction to Thyatira and the, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And let me just emphasize this, he's got eyes like a flame of fire. We'll come back to that in a minute. He says, I know your works, your love and faith. This is the commendation. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter work exceeded exceed the first. You know, the thing that jumps out to me out of that as I read that passage is this. Look how much actual practical pra works 
is involved in the scripture. And sometimes we get so caught up in saying, you know what, this Christian faith isn't about works, that we almost become comfortable sitting in our seats, sitting in a pew, coming to church on Sunday morning and never doing anything, never doing anything for the kingdom of God. Look what he says, I know your works, your love and faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works what you're doing now actually exceeds what you did in the beginning. And I think we have to be careful as the church. We don't lose sight of the reality that God expects us to not just have faith, but to actually do things. Do things in serving others, serving the lost, serving those within the church, serving those in our family, okay? He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. And then he gives this rebuke. He says, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Do you realize, do you see how many times in all three of these four churches, the same theme keeps popping up? Sexual immorality, um, living lives that are surrendered to idols, eating food that is sacrificed to idols, being comfortable with the culture around. That's really important today. And we as the church, I, I hope you're seeing that theme and you're getting that into your spirit tonight that we have got to guard ourselves against that very thing. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Could that be the church today in some instances? Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And, and, and maybe this is a reference. Maybe there's an inference here. Maybe not. I don't, I don't know. But the, the adultery, the sexual immorality she's committing is likely in, in, in her bed of adultery. And he says it's going to be that very thing that is going to be the place where her judgment comes. She's going to be thrown into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation and they, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Now, probably that's symbolic. Probably uh, Jezebel isn't a real person. This is probably all metaphorical. And by striking her children dead, meaning there will be a price to pay by those who choose to follow her and live her lifestyle. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, now let me just say this truth tonight, okay? We are living in a day where sexual immorality has become rampant. It has become accepted. It has become at least at, at, at some often, oftentimes, it's just kind of winked at and, and not addressed. But even the church today has gone to the place of embracing it and celebrating it and saying it's okay. And, and we're living in a time to, to take any other stand than that is culturally challenging because people will criticize you. They will call you out as being this kind of uh, homophobe or this kind of fear or phobia or what, whatever the case may be, depending on the immorality you're talking about. But I think this letter to the church at Pergamos probably is something the church today needs to take to heart. He says, I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. We still preach holiness we still practice holiness. We still live holiness. We still believe holiness. God still expects holiness. And his holiness is his holiness, not cultural holiness. And there's a difference. There absolutely is a difference today. But we, as the followers of Christ in covenant relationship with him, with God through him, our holiness is his holiness. And we have to remember that and understand it will cost us something. 
but it is still the standard we have to, to, to stay with. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, he says, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. We have to be careful of those in the churches, in the pastors, and the leaders that want to come out and say, hey, we've missed it all these years. God's given us a new understanding. We have a deeper understanding of what holiness is. So let's let's embrace these cultural realities today, these deeper things that are out there. We have a deeper understanding than we ever ever had before. And John says these are the things that some call the deep things of Satan. We have to be careful we don't embrace those in our attempt to be culturally relevant or culturally acceptable. The one who conquers, he says in the promise, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. We will have authority over the nations in eternity and that new heaven, new earth, and that new Jerusalem in the tail end, the last part of Revelation as we read that and how, however we understand that. Again, those who conquer, those that stay with Jesus, they will be the ones that have eternity before them. Um, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus himself in chapter 20 calls himself the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Let me just end up this uh, Thyatira reference um, with this thought. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Jesus who walks among the churches, he has eyes like flames of fire. He, he sees the hearts and minds that said earlier in this letter. Uh, understand this church, he knows what we think, he knows what we feel, he knows what our motivations are. He knows the depths of our heart. He sees all. He knows all. He responds to all with patience, with love, with grace, with mercy, with calls to repentance, but ultimately with justice and holiness and judgment. We need to make sure that we're really, really, really living what we claim to be living. Otherwise, we will one day pay a price for hypocrisy. Jesus walks among the churches. He sees everything. He searches hearts and he searches minds. Here's the common issues as I bring this to a close. Every, uh, three of these four churches, false teachers, they were called the Nicolaitans. The, they were called followers of Balaam, followers of Jezebel. They were practicing, condoning, or accepting sexual immorality. Uh, they were following cultural norms rather than biblical morality. There is application for us today. Be careful. Guard your mind. Guard your heart. Guard your beliefs. Um, make sure they're rooted in the Word of God, in, in, in a proper understanding and interpretation of the Word of God, but in the Word of God. Next week, and I, we're going to bring this to a close right now. Thank you guys for hanging with me for an extra five or ten minutes here. Next week, we're going to jump into chapter three, Christ in the Revelation. And uh, we're going to look at these last three churches, and then we're going to go a little deeper into Revelation after that, a little further over into um the stuff that sometimes we get really excited about reading. But we're going to continue to look for Jesus uh, in Revelation. So good to have you with us tonight. I appreciate you guys. Love you guys. You guys have a great week. And I hope to see you on Sunday. Those of you that are able to make it out to uh, church in person. Those of you that are not, I hope you will um, jump onto the feed Sunday morning and be a part of our service there. God bless. You guys have a great week. 
If you're looking for a church home or are interested in what God is doing through Souls Harbor, visit us at www.soulsharborag.com. If you have an encouraging story of what God has done in your life through these podcasts, please share it with us at sharbor at indy.rr.com.